Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. <clears throat> in John chapter 18, our text will be verses 1 to 11. We have finished the discourse of our Lord. We have finished the high priestly prayer of our Lord. As many theologians had said, that chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer, is really the crescendo of the upper room discourse. And now we're moving from there to what they refer to as the climax of the entire Gospel itself. When Jesus is going to give Himself on account of those whom the Father had given to Him according to His own words in John, in John chapter 17. In our text today, we're going to see him enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. We are going to see him arrested. But yet in all of that, we are going to see the sovereign power of Christ himself, that he is orchestrating everything that is coming to pass. Jesus is not a victim of circumstance. Rather, he is the sovereign, the only sovereign who is exercising his will so that everything that is taking place in his arrest and everything thereafter is according to his own sovereign decree. As we read of in the book of Acts, the prayer of the people of God in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, as they themselves would acknowledge, beginning in verse 27 of that chapter, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Everything is going according to plan. And you, and you see this even in Jesus' arrest here that he is sovereignly guiding everything that is happening. It is not at all that he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane in order to get away or to try to hide out. Or any of that, he is going to go to the, the place that he knows, that Judas knows about. Because they had been there previously. They had been there a number of times. He is heading directly into the storm. He is not at all a victim here. Or rather, he is the sovereign king who is getting ready to lay his life down for his people. He came into the world for this purpose. To go to the cross. This is why he came to redeem a people that was given to him by the Father. And what grace and mercy that you see here in this passage concerning his own disciples. A passage, or an account rather, that, that they would probably go back to in, in the time after his resurrection to remember and reflect upon everything that happened here and, and his sovereign will being exercised right before them, though they didn't understand it at that time. So a few things that we're going to look at in this passage. Even though the forces of darkness are at work, seeking to destroy the Lamb of God, what we see, rather than them having a victory, we see that he even commands them. As there is nothing that happens in the kingdom of darkness that will ever have an effect on the kingdom of Christ, as MacArthur has said. You see what great care that he has for his own people, the graces that he bestows on them, the protection that he has, that he exercises for them. 
And you also see what happens when we have misguided zeal. It doesn't bring the praise of God, but rather it brings a strong rebuke from Christ himself. So let's look at this passage together and pray that the Spirit of God would apply it to our hearts. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to hear the Word of God. John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Jesus then having received, or Judas then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into its sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And we pray that the Spirit of God would give us understanding and that he would apply this passage to our hearts, that we may reflect upon the greatness and sovereignty of our God and the grace and mercy that he is, extends to us. Well, Father, teach us. And we pray that the Spirit of God would indeed teach us, as we can only know and learn as he illumines the passage in our hearts. Father, may we carry out the things that we learn today, that you would be honored. Bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> <clears throat> we remember that Jesus had met with his disciples to have the Passover meal. We read of this, uh, the beginning of the dialogue, the beginning of the discourse in chapter 13. We remember how Jesus is really beginning to rebuke his disciples because they're questioning amongst themselves who's the greatest in the kingdom. They're unwilling to wash each other's feet because it's so beneath each one of them. And so we see that great example of our Lord who girds himself. The greatest among them is the one who will serve them in this way of washing their feet. He begins to speak to them of the things that is to come, of, of the things that are going to happen, that he must depart. At the end of chapter 14, we read that Jesus had told his disciples 
to let us go from here. Get up and let us go from here. That they have left the upper room in chapter 14 as they are making their way through the streets of Jerusalem from chapters 15 on. That Jesus is still having his discourse with them. He is still explaining the things that they need to hear, that they need to know. What great care and love that he has for them. That in the night in which he knows that he is getting ready to be arrested and to give his life, his concern is still with them. This is, these are the things that they need to know in order to be prepared for what is getting ready to occur. So perhaps as they are passing by the area of the temple and they see that big statue there of the grapevine, that it is then that Jesus begins that parable of the true vine. His last I am statement. He gives the warnings in chapter 16. More things to come. This coming of the Spirit of God. Everything He's going to accomplish. And then we are allowed into the Holy of Holies in chapter 17. In order to see this, this love and this communion that the Son has with the Father. That he, is, that he is praying this out loud where the disciples can hear Him. He asked the Father to glorify Him with the glory that they shared with each other before the world was. He asked the Father to protect His people, to sanctify His people, to give them the peace and the joy that, that He has, not as the world gives, as He said previously, to protect them in their mission. And then in chapter 18, John tells us, that when Jesus had spoken these words, perhaps they are getting past the area of the temple. And John tells us that he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now here, this is Jesus on his mission. Again, he is heading directly into the storm. He has said everything that he needs to say to his disciples in order to prepare them that the Spirit of God would bring these things back to their minds after he, has, after he has departed. And he gets to the area in which he's going to cross over the brook Kidron. The place in which when the sacrifices were done, that the blood of the, the sacrifices would run over. And the Lamb of God, the true sacrifice, is making his way over the Kidron Brook. The very thing that signifies him. He is crossing over to head into the place that he will begin to give his life as a ransom for many. John says he went forth. He's not one that is in hiding. He's not one that is trying to elude Judas, as he is going to go to the very place that he knows that Judas knows of. The very place in which Judas is probably going to come there first. Maybe that's where they were spending their time during the days of the Passover in that area. So Jesus heads directly there. Judas knows this place well. You know, John doesn't detail for us the agony of Christ as the other gospel writers do. He doesn't record for us in the time in which when Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane that he falls down and he begins to pray. Father, let this cup pass from me. 
John doesn't record that. John doesn't record the words of our Lord when he says, My soul is sorrowful unto death. John rather shows us the sovereign king in the midst of his grieving, in the midst of heading into the place that he knows that he's going to be betrayed by a friend, heading to the very place that he knows his disciples are going to, to leave him and they're going to scatter into the place that his own creation is going to lay their hands on him. Into the place that he is going to sweat great drops of blood. Because of the agony that he is considering. Enduring the very wrath of his father. Something he never experienced before. This is the place that he goes the place in which his, his friend will betray him with repeated kisses. So Jesus enters into the garden. He goes to that very place. The king on his mission. And John tells us that Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having received the Roman cohort, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. Some, some translations may not put that in your, your Bibles there, Roman. If you have a New American Standard, it is in italics. And it's implied there because of the specific word that is used here is used throughout the Gospel of John to refer to the Roman soldiers. This is a Roman detachment. Not only has Judas, perhaps, or the chief priest have convinced the Roman soldiers that Jesus is is a threat that they send a detachment out. This is maybe some estimate two to three hundred soldiers that are coming for him. Not only them, but the temple guards themselves. They are coming out with lanterns and torches and weapons. They're coming out with lanterns and torches to find the light of the world. As if he's going to be hiding. They come out with weapons, swords, and clubs. To try to capture the Prince of Peace. Jesus knew all the things that were coming upon him, as John tells us here. Everything that was getting ready to occur. The time in which he was going to be arrested and beaten the hairs of his beard plucked out of his face, the great scourging, the crucifixion, his father pouring out his righteous wrath upon him. He knew everything that was getting ready to come upon him. And in light of that, the time of agonizing is done. The soldiers are there. And what does Jesus do? He goes forth. Just as John tells us in verse 1, he went forth with his disciples. So he says again, knowing all things that were coming upon him, he went forth and confronts the soldiers that are there to arrest him. Whom do you seek? What a question. Whom do you seek? The Jesus that they were after was 
was not the Jesus that they had expected. These unregenerate men were coming out to lay their hands on the one who would redeem his people, not of the earthly Messiah figure that they had so often believed would come. This one was delivering them from the wrath of God, not from an earthly enemy. He says to them, whom do you seek? And they answer, Jesus the Nazarene. He says to them, I am. This is another one of those I am statements. A go, a me. He says, I am. Leon Morris, he writes this, because in the moment that he says this, it's like what, what exactly had happened? What happened whenever he said, I am? Because John will tell us that Judas is standing there, he says, I am, and they drew back and they, they fell to the ground. Now some will say, well, maybe they fell to the ground because they were caught off guard. That they're out to try to find uh, Jesus and all of a sudden he's right before them. So maybe they were caught off guard. Maybe they fell backwards tripping into each other because understanding who he was, they got into a defense, a defense position, a defense posture. Or rather, this is in a moment that his glory shone through as he speaks these words, I am. Taking us back to the time of Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when he says, Whom shall I say sent me? You tell him, I am has sent you. Leon Morris writes this. The soldiers, they come out to arrest a fleeing peasant. But in the gloom, they find themselves confronted by a commanding figure who is so far from running away comes out to meet them and speaks to them in language of deity. That's who they found. They found the one who was heading directly to them, who commands the heavens, who commands everything that takes place. This is the one they, they found. And when he speaks that language of deity, as Leon Morris points out, perhaps in that one moment, in that shining moment, that his glory shone forth in such a powerful way that it knocked him to the ground. And the interesting thing is, they fall to the ground. They gain their posture. They pick up their weapons. They stand up again. And he's still standing there. And gives them another chance to arrest him. They didn't fall back so that he could get away. They fell back, then they gained themselves. They stand up again. And so he asked them a second time, Whom do you seek? Say, Jesus the Nazarene. He is commanding all of this, he heads directly to them. And even when they fall down, he allows them to get right back up in order to once again speak to them that he would be arrested. He's commanding all of this. Again, he would have had opportunity to have, to have left. 
He could have ran. But he didn't. That's not why he came. That's, that was not his purpose. His purpose wasn't to avoid being arrested and avoid going to the cross. This is the very reason he came. It would be this night in which he would fulfill his mission as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But notice what he says. As he is commanding all of this, they ask him again, whom do you seek? He says, they say, Jesus the Nazarene. He says to them, I told you that I am. But here's what he says. So if you seek me, let these go their way. John tells us this was to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Referencing us back to chapter 17 when he's praying to the father. He lost not one. Now this could, you know, some look at this and would say, well, he's, he's keeping them from this, this physical danger. And indeed, in one sense, he is. He's already putting himself forth as the substitute. He's already saying, you can have me. I'm the one that you've come to get. But let these go their way. Now, the question would come, why would they even listen to him? Here's two to three hundred soldiers that have come out from the chief priest to arrest a man that is a rebel or a zealot, whatever they said in order to get them to come out. He's a criminal. And this criminal, as he confronts them, as he is giving himself to them, he is still commanding them. Let these go their way. Why would they listen? Because he said so. That's why. Their faith was perhaps unable to withstand what was getting ready to happen. This is a great act of love and mercy and grace on the part of Jesus. Not to say, let's all band together. Let's keep ourselves together. Maybe our punishment won't be so severe if we're all together. No, he says, you can have me, let these go their way. Hendrickson writes this. Had the disciples at this time been captured by the soldiers and temple guards, it would have been too severe a test for their faith. They were not ready for this extreme ordeal, this torture. Jesus knew this. Hence, he sees to it that they are not arrested. End quote. This is an act of grace on Jesus' part. In the protection of his disciples, not just from the physical danger, but for the danger that could come upon them for their faith, in reference to their faith. Their faith wasn't ready to handle this magnitude of an ordeal. And so he sees to it that they may go their way. How gracious of Christ. What mercy is shown. What love is shown to his disciples. They're not ready for this. So they're going to go. You know, there is a great lesson in that. That our Lord allows troubles in our life. He allows sufferings in our life. He allows the tribulations in our life. Such as our faith can take in those moments. 
What I am not saying, I am not saying that God will put no more on you than what you can handle. That's not what I'm saying. Every ordeal is more than we can handle. Every ordeal is. But with every instance in which our faith is being tested, there's a higher degree that we can endure each time because of His strength and, and His purifying of, of us. And at this time, His disciples couldn't handle it. Not this magnitude of a situation. And the, even though there are difficult things that come within our lives, times of great pain, we're talking about Kelly and Jason earlier, that right in this moment in which in which we are here offering worship to our God. In these moments, right now, they are enduring great heartache. But the thing to take comfort in for them and for us is that the Lord allows these things in our lives at His appointed time no sooner, no later, and they are never a cause to cause us to stumble or to fall, but to keep refining us and to keep strengthening us with His strength and with His continued presence. And in that we can take great comfort that in anything that comes in our life, That our Lord has sovereignly orchestrated it in order to make us more dependent, give us, produce in us a greater thanks and a greater love for his continued presence with us in some of our darkest times. We can only imagine such things that would come upon us. What things are threatening us? And our Lord says, no. Let these go their way. Not yet. Not now. That is the great love and grace of our God. Every day he shows us that kind of grace and mercy. Every day he shows us that kind of love. To keep us from such things. And when they do happen. And inevitably they will. Then this is the time in which. We focus ourselves back upon. The majesty of Christ. And say. Not my will but yours. I know that you're only good. I know that you have ordained all things. I know that all things work after the counsel of your will. I know that all things work together for good. I know that you've declared the end from the beginning. And this is part of your plan. Oh Lord give me strength. And the disciples would need that. They would need to have. That time in which. They could reflect upon the incident of that night. That they could be strengthened once again whenever he would appear to them after his, his death and his entombment. That he would resurrect and show himself. Strengthening them to a higher degree of, of faith as he does for each one of us. A great love. You know, there's often many times in which we desire 
because of what we have received from him and what great love that he has shown to us that we that we we have that zealousness for him we have that love for him and we want to we want to show him how much that we love him sometimes our zeal and sometimes our desire can indeed be misguided as it was here with peter jesus is commanding all of this everything's going according to plan so again, this is not in, in a sense in which he is a victim. He's commanding us. But Peter, because of his great love that he has for Christ, his master, he has a sword. He draws out the sword, and it's, it's probably a small dagger, a small sword, the word that's being used here. He draws out his sword and he cuts the ear of the high priest's slave, cuts it off. Now, the other gospel writers don't tell us who it was. John is the one who outs Peter. It was Peter who did this. The slave's name was Malchus. When Peter had done this, Jesus doesn't say, Peter, I appreciate what you're trying to do for me. I appreciate... Your, your zealousness for me, your love for me. You know, we look at this, and, and, and for us, we look at, at Peter hacking off a high priest slave's ear, the one who's coming out to arrest Jesus, and we're like, took his whole head off. How dare they come out to take our Lord, the, the Lord of glory? We give, we give Peter praise, or we give him an excuse. Well, I understand understand why he did it we may even think to ourselves that well if i'd have been there too i would want to have done the same things like this end up bringing praise from men because we do have a heart for christ we do have a uh, we're jealous for his glory and when we are attacked or he is attacked in a variety of ways or whatever it does produce in us a great anger that we want to lash out we want to respond in such a way as what we feel is necessary for however they have attacked us or attacked Christ we desire that but this doesn't bring praise from Christ this brings a strong rebuke from Christ he says put your sword into its sheath put it up the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The bitter cup of the wrath of God, the one he had prayed for earlier, as he is agonizing, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. This is why he came. There's no saving him. He is the one who is laying his life down willingly. His life isn't being taken from him. He lays it down willingly. In the Gospel of Matthew... We read these words. Chapter 26 of Matthew. Beginning verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? 
How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? This is, this is a strong rebuke against Peter. Peter, I don't need you to try to defend me. I can ask of my father and he'll give me 12 legions of angels at my disposal to do whatever it is I need them to do if I need to be saved. And actually, even with that, he didn't. All he had to do was speak a word and they fell back. Imagine what he could do whenever the sword comes out of his mouth in that, that apocalyptic language and devours his enemies at the end. He needs no one to save him. And it's amazing to me that in the time in which Peter is standing there with Jesus and there's two, three hundred soldiers right there that he draws out a sword and he hacks off somebody's ear and nobody moves. None of the other soldiers are drawing out their sword to try to hack down Peter. Why? Because the sovereign God didn't command that. Because the sovereign king who is standing before them he is the one orchestrating this whole thing. It will not happen this way. He is in control over them. These are people who hate him. Who have tried to lay hands on him numerous times. And in the time that they would probably feel justified in drawing out a sword. They do nothing. Because they're standing before the great I am. The one who created them. And they can do nothing. They are powerless. When it comes to the sovereign king. What are their weapons? Their swords and their clubs. Their torches. What are they before a man who can speak? And it's done. He doesn't need Peter to defend him. And often, he doesn't need us to do the same. In the instance that we do, we end up bringing more dishonor to Christ than we do praise to him. Because people expect us to react in a certain way, and so they provoke us. They will often provoke because they're trying to get a certain reaction. And, and that reaction, when it does come, then they can point and say, Aren't you supposed to be a Christian? Aren't you supposed to be a follower of Christ? Aren't you supposed to be this? It gives them reason to bring charges against us. This is what Calvin says. Having already been more than enough hated by the world, this single deed might give plausibility to all the calumnies which his enemies falsely brought against him. This would give an opportunity for his enemies in the midst of his trial in order to bring charges against him. He's an insurrectionist. His disciple was trying to kill this Roman or this, this slave of the high priest. Our zeal has to be kept in the proper bounds, and, and Peter needed to realize that. Peter needed to learn that. He needed to, to know that we, we have to be very careful when we're, when we're responding back or we're reacting to something. Especially when it comes to the attacks on our Lord. Now granted, there should be a reaction. There should be a response. Even Calvin says, even a dog barks when its master is being attacked. How can we keep silent? 
But it's the manner in which we respond which will either bring honor to Christ or it will bring dishonor to Christ. The way Peter reacted and the way Peter responded was, was not at all a praiseworthy act. It was misguided. One writer says this, in short, provided that this remain always fixed in our hearts, let the will of the Lord be done. When we seek deliverance from the evils which, which press upon us, we do not fail to drink the cup which the Lord has given to us. So in this instance in which things are happening, whether it is, it is you know, prov you know, being provoked or whatever the case is, we have to respond in such a way that Christ is honored and sometimes accept the fact that this is the cup we have to drink in these moments. This is the way that we must go. Being scorned, being uh, slandered. All of these things. And these, these are the very things that Jesus has said to his disciples. Pick up your cross and follow me. It is not sunshine and rainbows all the time. It's not going to be that. There's going to be times of pain. There's going to be times of sorrow. There's going to be times of anger. But those have to be kept in check by what we know to be true in the sight of God, what we know to be true in Him, and what we know to be pleasing to Him. We cannot respond in such a way than give ourselves an excuse to say, well, Lord, you know what they were saying to me. You know what they were saying about you. I responded in this kind of a way. You know, I'm sorry, but this is just how I felt like it needed to be. There's no excuses on that. There's no bringing ourselves so low that we are on the same level as those that are saying things to us. That's why we don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest we become like him. Sometimes we have to take things, turn the other cheek. That doesn't mean that we keep quiet. Sometimes it just means that when it's harsher on the other side, sometimes we have to endure that while maintaining the truth of God. To be zealous for Christ is to be jealous for his namesake. Yes, all of that. But it's to be kept in line and in check with what the scriptures have said that our conduct should be. And the way that our words should be. Having misguided zeal is going against the very things that we know to be true. And giving ourselves an excuse for it. Truly we should be jealous for his namesake. We should be jealous for his glory. This is probably one of the reasons why our Lord tells us, vengeance is mine. Don't take out vengeance on another. Whether it's because you feel like you've been wronged by them or they have said something about our Lord or whatever. It's one of the reasons why he says that because in, inevitably anything that we give back as, as a vengeance or to take revenge, it's going to be way worse than what they have done. And so we're going to end up putting, in our, putting ourselves in a situation in which our Lord is going to be dishonored greatly by our words. And our words are the very thing that causes more trouble than any actions that we perform. Because our words can be very harsh. They are set on fire with the fires of hell is the way James would put it. Especially when you're being provoked. 
And we can't use excuses. Well, I can't control this and I can't control that. If you have the Spirit of God in you, yes, you can. Yes, you can. The fruit of the Spirit. What are they? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right? So we can't say, well, I just lost my temper in all this language that we use or whatever. No, you just indulged in the very thing that you wanted to do because it gave you pleasure in those moments to do it because you were being provoked. And instead of doing those things, let us think, what is more honoring to Christ? And let me deny my own impulses and my own sinful pleasures in this moment. Let me do what's right in the eyes of Christ because my, my whole being is to give Him praise and thanks. Not to keep something for myself and give myself an excuse or whatever. We have to be very careful when it comes to misguided zeal. Yes, be zealous for the Lord. Yes, stand for the truth of God. But do it in such a way that you don't compromise who you are in Christ. Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Walk worthy of Christ, as Paul says. And Peter, Peter had to learn that lesson himself. This isn't going to be another situation in which Peter's going to find himself in. And when the time comes that Peter is being persecuted, he's not going to respond like this again. When the time comes that Peter is going to be arrested himself and he's going to be, he's going to be martyred, he's not responding like he is now. Because these are things that he has learned too, that yes, I want to be zealous for the Lord. I want to be jealous for His name's sake. I want to be jealous for His glory. But my first, my first duty as a believer in Christ, as a disciple of Christ, is to do that which is honorable to Him. He doesn't need us to protect Him. He doesn't need us to cause hurt towards somebody else because they've said something about Him. This is the whole idea when it comes to apologetics. What is it that we're doing in apologetics? We're tearing down imaginations and philosophies, every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Yes, but we're not tearing them down. We're tearing down their ideas. We're tearing down their philosophies. They're still an image bearer of God. And so we treat them with dignity and with value while tearing down the very things that they believe in order to establish the truth of Christ. So even then, it's done in such a way that Christ is honored. Now consider that. Let us all consider it. Because we're, we're all so guilty of responding in such a way that, that we, we don't think of anything else. But, but consider what's happening here in this passage. Everything that's happening is going according to His plan. This isn't a bump in the road in which He needs His disciples to respond for Him. This is a great king who is sovereignly exercising his, his decree from all eternity. This is a sovereign king who is protecting them. He, he doesn't need their protection. He protects them as, as an extension of his grace and his mercy and his love to them. And so their duty is not to have misguided zeal. Their duty is to just do what he says to do. To say the things in which they need to say in a way that honors Him. To do the things that they need to do in a way that honors Him. And this is our very lesson as well. 
He protects us every day. He keeps us from so many things that can harm us because he says, no, let these go their way. He extends such grace to us every day. Such, such love every day. And in light of this, in light of, in light of the great love that he's getting ready to show and giving himself on behalf of sinners, it is a small thing to deny our own impulses and say, oh Lord, what is more pleasing to you? We often fail. We do. But if we know these are things that we need to be doing, then we need to begin to do them. And as always, there's always the great hope. One day we'll do it right. We strive for it. We fight against ourselves now. But one day we will do all these things right at his appointed time when he calls us home. We will worship him right. We will pray to him right. We will love him right. We will have peace in him in the way that honors him and joy. All of these things. We strive for it now. One day he will perfect that in us. But let us indeed be exerting everything in us to honor him. To walk humbly. Because if we can walk humbly before our Lord, it's going to be a little bit easier, not to say that it's all easy, but it's going to be a little bit easier to handle when someone says something about us because we're going to recognize, well, who am I anyway? Who am I? And as Todd Friel had said, when me and Amanda and Randy and Dustin had went to um, G3 a couple years ago, me and Dustin were in one of the sessions with Todd Friel, and he had said, you know, the Apostle Paul had said that he was the chief of sinners. He's dead, so the crown's up for grabs. He was right, though, right? If you can consider yourself to be the chief of sinners, then when you feel wronged by another, one of the things you're not going to do is necessarily is to look at them and say, I can't believe that they would do that. I can't believe that they would act this way. I can't believe that they would say this to me. Instead, you're going to say, I know why they're doing it, because they're sinners just like me, just like I was. They think the way that they do because that's how I used to think. And so there's going to be more compassion that you extend even to those who are hard-nosed and stiff-necked, who are the unregenerate, who have hearts of stone, all of that. You'll be more gracious because you recognize that without the Spirit of God doing the work in you, you would be the same. And considering yourself to be the chief of sinners, you recognize every day how much that you sin against our Lord, how much that you speak against Him whenever you sin. Anytime that you say something or you do something, you're not just sinning against another person, you're sinning against Him. And yet, what does He say? What does He do? He gives us such great hope. My mercies are new every morning. I've given you an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if we can think that way in the moments in which we are being attacked and provoked, perhaps it will soften our hearts to respond rightly. That Christ will be honored. That's the whole goal of the Christian life, dear friends. To honor Christ. You, know, you look at so many of the, the confessions and the catechisms. What is the chief end of man? 
glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We get to experience that here. Ultimately, it will be obviously more fuller there. But let us indeed seek to glorify Him in all things. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you so much for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us. Thank you for giving us such a a wonderful and gracious picture of our Lord, our sovereign King, who is even commanding the forces of darkness in order to ensure his arrest, that he would indeed go to the cross and give his life a ransom for many, to lay down his life for his people, and for all who believe in him, they will never perish. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this great work of our Lord. Father, may we ever keep it in the forefront of our thoughts and give us strength in the times in which we are provoked. Let us not respond in a way that would compromise who we are in Christ, but to show forth the gracious nature of our God and how we respond. To establish his truth firmly, but never to degrade ourselves. Oh, Father, help us every day. We need you every day to accomplish these things. May the Spirit of God do a mighty work within us, a continued work. May his work never cease in us, but to continually sanctify us to be more more pleasing in your sight, to honor you as we should. Father, give me the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.